Welcome to Turning the Page, Lexington Public Library's podcast where we discuss library happenings, take a behind-the-scenes look at different parts of the library, and of course, book recommendations and author interviews. I'm your host, Jennifer. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Today we're discussing the book, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. Heather McGee is an expert in economic and social policy, the former president of the inequality-focused think tank, Timos. McGee has drafted legislation, testified before Congress, and has contributed regularly to news shows, including Meet the Press. She now chairs the Board of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. McGee holds a BA in American Studies from Yale University, and a JD from the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Joining me are some of my fellow library staff members. I'm Brenna Pye. I'm Juniper Myers. I'm Heather Pritchard. Later we will hear from Anne-Marie Cornett as she discusses diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives of the Lexington Public Library. Welcome Brenna, Heather, and Juniper. Heather, yes. Uh, McGee uses the example of pu- public pools to illustrate how racism caused people to destroy something that could have benefited us all. Can you identify other pools, public goods that you see America going without, and how do you now think differently about the role racism might have played in this dynamic? The first public pool that that came up for me as I read this was our our public school system, and our public higher education system. It just brought up a lot of questions and interested me because I'm a parent. I have a child in, in a public school. I have friends that are choosing, you know, private schools for their kids. And and I had never considered or couched it in terms of how racism would affect public policy in the way that um, are we going to cut funding again for education? It's always on the chopping block, Mm -hmm. and it's always the outcome of having an educated, you know, population is always positive. So I never could understand why am I still – hearing that we're going to cut funding to education. Why are the arts programs being cut? They're uh, always cut, yes. Always cutting, you know, and I can, I'm still in contact with, with folks that I went to high school with, you know, and I was very involved in band and choir when I was uh, a young person. And I would look back and see the the high school band goes from, we were 175 strong and to 20 kids, you know, and to that school system decides to take three different, I'm from Western Kentucky from McCracken County, and now they have a McCracken County public school system. When I was a kid, there was uh, Lone Oak, Reedland, and Heath, and we all had our own, you know, bands and our own choirs. And watching my, my daughter's school experience they also don't have the, you know, funding for the arts that, that used to be just something you would expect. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so, it's, it was nothing but beneficial for me. So I, I don't understand why it was cut, uh, and why anybody would think that's a good idea. Right. And I also had an experience, um, 
working for um, one of our public universities as a staff member. Um, this university is the the has the highest number of employees in the state of Kentucky, mm-hmm. and there was a period around the time of the housing crisis, but actually it was before that because I left the university before that housing crisis in 2008. It was like the the early 2000s. Every year, the funding for higher education at the state level was being, it was on the chopping block and it was being cut. And every year, tuition went up a little bit for the students and the staff members like myself um, at that time did not get raises. And the going without raises at that university went for a decade or so mm-hmm. without, a, without a, you know, an increase. There would be an increase and it would be offset by uh, the cost of parking and the cost of health insurance. So Which there was no raise. Too. Yeah. <laughs> and... You know, you have to wonder, why would this make sense to anybody? And then the argument that Heather McGee makes for racism being kind of an underlying factor in why these decisions are made, it was eye-opening for me because I hadn't, I knew the middle class was on the chopping block, but I didn't understand how it, you know, wo- it was woven in with systemic racism. And it's one of those things where once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't argue that, you know, I I can't argue that she's not right. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I found there are so many questions that come up to me as to how does this happen? How do you end up with a voting population that will you know, will hire the politicians who make these decisions and tell you that they're going to make this decision. Um, And yet it happens. So then I have to look at, um, and I'm sorry if I'm not staying on a direct, you know, question about this public, the public pool that I'm talking about, but, but I think it's such a, it, has its tentacles in everything. Yes. Because I found myself while reading this book, and not just this book, but uh, the the podcast 1619 yes. uh, came out a couple of years ago. Um, and I had to acknowledge, as a person, I think I'm pretty well educated, but I had to acknowledge that I did not know or appreciate that Slavery in this this new colony began before the Mayflower landed. That's correct. Yeah. As a kindergartner, all the way through K through twelve, I'm learning about the Mayflower and the Pilgrims. Never learning anything, nothing, absolutely nothing about the colonization of the South. And in my own family, doing genealogy, as one does as a librarian, (laughs) especially if you're a librarian who works with a certain, but it's true, you're going to do some genealogy. And I find in my, you know, in my family history, we talk about the Union soldiers and the, the family that came from Massachusetts and trickled down through Ohio and to Illinois, those, those folks. 
We didn't talk about the ones that came to Virginia and worked in, you know, we're, I don't have any evidence they owned slaves, but they certainly went from one slave-owning state to another slave-owning state and then fought in the for the Confederacy. And in our, like in a published book on my family, one of my family members lied, flat out lied. If they did the research, they would know that this Patra, you know, this um, Potter Familia that started this line of my family only came to Western Kentucky and Southern Illinois when he walked away from Atlanta while it was burning. It was pretty easy to find when I started doing the research. But in the book that they published on that side of the family, they said that he moved his family to Southern Illinois in 1860. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't. And, you know, the the fact that he did go on to, you know, marry uh, a woman who was a widow of a Union soldier, and he did adopt that child, and he did stay in southern Illinois. Maybe he changed his ways. I don't even know what his ways were because we don't, we just don't talk about it, right. you know. So I find myself now questioning not just what I was taught as a young person, but how I was taught to learn about things. Oh, yes, yes. And I have to also remind myself that how I was taught is completely different from how, you know, those around me may have been taught. Correct. And that un understanding that's both frightening and a little amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, I am comforted that my daughter's experience is different from mine and that she does seem to be a lot more open to diversity and um, what she's learning probably because the internet's out there you can't argue with what you can see although <laughs> not all of that is 100 percent truthful too but but just that right. she's more comfortable questioning things does anyone want to add to Heather's answer to question three. Does anyone have a response or or wants to add to something to question three? Yeah, I, I can chime in actually, yes, I love um, it. especially on like the like history and like what you know and what you're being taught. Um, you know, I was my mom always talked about growing up how she did you know grow up with this, literally the public pools and you know whenever we talk about it, she'd just be like, oh yeah, they just closed one day. And reading mm -hmm. through this now, it's like, oh, there were actual reasons why those closed. They didn't just go away. There mm -hmm. were reasons, and just nobody talks about them. They just literally went away. We mm -hmm. don't recognize that. We don't talk about that. And that was it's completely eye-opening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I might be closer to your mom's age. And, yeah. and I do remember a pool in Paducah, uh, the Woodlawn neighborhood pool that I went to as a toddler, and then it was filled in. And I asked my mom about this, you know, after reading this book, and she said she talked about how that was such a good neighborhood. She didn't have anything more to say. She didn't have any. Be, if it was filled in because it became desegregated, she wasn't even aware. Hmm. 
that that was the reasoning. I mean, it wasn't our neighborhood. We had to get in a car to go there. But I do remember it being an option, and then it wasn't. And the only thing you could do is go to the Noble Park pool and pay money to, you know, to go to that pool. Mm-hmm. And that was open to anybody. But it wasn't it wasn't a neighborhood or a community thing. It was a big pool and just I just think the pool like metaphor is such is so good. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because it is these things that, you know, it says public goods that you see America going without, but these are just yeah, they're public goods, things that are so beneficial to everybody and also opportunities for people to, and that's kind of what I got from the whole book, is these opportunities for people to engage with, with each other are taken away because of racism. And I really, this maybe isn't to the point of uh, this question, but to me, this is really a story. This book is really a story about class rather than race and how race is a strategic it's been used strategically by the upper classes to uh, divide and conquer uh everyone else manipulation yeah absolutely 100 yeah. percent. yeah and like people not being able you know not knowing why they closed well yeah why i mean if if someone did you know in these neighborhoods that are like primarily white if if they had known, if the community had known why these pools were suddenly unavailable, what would have been, that's my question, like what would have been the backlash? Would there have been a backlash? Right. Would right. people be more clued in to the idea that, you know, this was something good for the entire community? Why, it, you know, just these opportunities to organize are taken away from us. Right. Mm-hmm. That's true. And there was something else I looked into as well with like just opportunities is like public transportation in the United States and like how much of that just isn't being built up because, you know, that construction would impact communities or would, you know, bring people in from the wrong communities. And like, uh, I think specifically as like Cincinnati, mm-hmm. they've got like a whole series of subway tunnels up there that were just closed right. and like... You see at the time, like looking back now, you can see that the minute they closed is the minute that it started to impact wealthier neighborhoods. Yeah. And then they suddenly made it this whole issue and they just bombarded it with this like anti-subway campaign and then it just shut down. And it's just, that's a public service that's not there anymore. It's just gone. Public transportation, I think, is a really good public, like yeah. pool I there an example of that for, that I have experienced is um, so in Los Angeles for a long time you know there's a light rail system that's new metro but there wasn't you know it like stopped at downtown LA so you couldn't get to Santa Monica and that prevented a lot of people from the inner city quote unquote mm-hmm. to get to enjoy the beach and right before I moved to Kentucky, I was able to take, they had built one, it's the blue line going from downtown LA to Santa Monica. So it's amazing. And it opens up so much opportunity for people. And on the train, you know, I took it before I left and I noticed people who were from communities that otherwise, like they would not have been able to, right. to, yeah. to do this, to have this experience. And it was really eye-opening. And I'm so glad that they did that. Um, because that really does allow the disparate communities in Southern California to engage with each other. 
wealthy Santa Monica and sort of, I hate saying inner city, you know, sort of like East LA and Northeast LA and those areas. So we're going to move to a question for Juniper. Let's talk about the way McGee's metaphor of the drained pool has led to the student debt crisis and how is it influencing generations of black and white college graduates? Yeah. Again, I think like you were saying, Brent, it's such a great metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is going to tie in a lot with what you're saying, Heather, about, you know, public schools. And uh, you really see when integration starts and uh, public schools suddenly, well, they're going to start cutting off funding. They start, you know, putting the primary amount of funding into property taxes. Well, who's less likely to have income from property taxes? What neighborhoods are less likely to have income from property taxes there? So just right from that, you get an immediate, you know, drop in quality of schools that are primarily minorities, primarily black. And, you know, those are so hard to overcome if you're, you've got students coming out with completely different outcomes because their schools just aren't, they're not even in the same class because of these treatments. And then you've got those same people competing for colleges. Um, yeah, it's just, but then there are so many things that uh, McGee was talking about, like the GI Bill and all of the people after World War II that you know, theoretically that could have been a great benefit that, you know, people could have taken that and used that to get that leg up. But the only people that were getting that leg up were white. So this supposedly, you know, public fund, this supposedly great thing that's going to help out all those people who went and fought in World War II is only helping out one certain class of people. And so you've got immediately that amount of debt that's being placed on them or those opportunities that aren't. Um, And then she also was talking about, like, how with, you know, integration and the fight against like public schools and failing education funding like how funding for those things uh, like how grants are turning into loans which isn't really any kind of like oh, yeah. yeah yeah so it's, like, it's not really helping it's not, too much. It's not really helping it's just a, a loan you still have to pay it back you still have to pay you know 10 15 30 percent on top of what you're taking out and if that's suddenly the default and if that's what you know everybody has to get then you've saddled with that much more debt and then people whose parents were able to benefit from the gi bill from the better public schools are coming in with higher generational wealth and then they're able to put that towards that debt so then their kids can have better outcomes as well and if you're coming into this with none of that well you're on the losing yeah, end yeah exactly yeah I guess the other thing about this question I always think about is the the idea of what we can do about student loans, but they also the point of that how much money you have to pay for school, how when you graduate, how good is your degree, and you're going to try to get a job, and then now it's this flooded market of people all trying to get jobs, and the pay for those particular jobs are low, and then you you're now you have all this that you have to pay in loans and then you've got your education and how are you going to pay for these loans? when You're only making this much money. I mean, this idea is, is really hard too when you think about cost of living and what, and, and items like that. So yeah. And that affects everyone, but it also affects the people more that are already behind. Yeah. 
what we're discussing. So, yeah. And then you also see with like people graduating, especially right now, like we had the recession, we've had the pandemic and all that. And, you know, the people who are getting hit hardest by that are people who are already poor, who are already having problems. And especially if you look at the causes of a recession, like that was right around when I was, you know, graduating. And like that's entirely caused by a wealthier class of people. Yes. Like, so that's just their decisions and their problems that are affecting everybody below them. And I have to say, so 2008 was when you... I was in school. Oh, one, so, yeah. so like around 2008 during the Great Recession, mm-hmm. uh, so many quotes. <laughs> I was when I graduated college and yeah, I could not find a job. I, you know, I'm a public historian, so no jobs, no museum jobs. Yeah, there's no jobs. So you have to get sort of a low paying job mm-hmm. to pay back. But then, okay, well, there's no job. So I might as well go to grad school so I can get a better. Now I'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. But I was thinking when you were talking, this idea, you know, there's when Biden, to win the presidency, he said, I'll get rid of student loans. And there's this contingent of people who are like, no, don't do that because I paid mine off and other people should have to. And that is Mm -hmm. a zero sum idea. Like, that is very true. Yeah. And, and it's, I don't know if it's necessarily race-based, even though uh, when people say it, brown people and black people are the people with the highest sort of levels of debt. But this idea that if someone gets an easier time than me, everything, well, my money is wasted. Well, everything is ruined for me. And I just, I don't understand that because, you know, the last sentence of the book is we are greater than and greater for the some of us like the we and we the people is not some of us but all of us like we all live here and we all have to live under these sort of rules that don't work for everyone so why make someone's life harder why want someone's life to be more difficult than yours if it doesn't have to be and i just really feel that's that yeah that's that zero something Mm -hmm. It's incredible that you would think that someone would literally say that, like, okay, <laughs> really? I'm so glad you brought that up, too. Because it's a really she, good point. Yeah, and, and the author, McGee, brings that point up in the book also that, um, and I don't recall exactly where, it's not something that I marked, but this idea of zero sum that people of color and their family units and their social structures off they don't feel that way mm-hmm. but this unfortunately white um we are taught this mm-hmm. yeah and i even in some of my notes that i took i, I was you know questioning what is a happy successful life what what is that and Am I happy? Does my happiness require me to use or abuse or oppress someone else? Mm. And so if the answer to that is no, and it really, you know, (laughs) it really is no, why would I want or encourage the suffering of someone else? And I think on some level, because because of my experience, I can't really know what it's like to not have this privilege of being white, because that's how I grew up. But how do I 
increase my empathy and understand that I have a blind spot, a really big blind spot, you know, and I, this book really challenged me on some levels. Um, I'll admit I grew up in a very working class family, just one generation away from the farm. And then my mom was widowed when I was really young. So I was raised in a single parent household. And I have had to struggle to to get to where I I am, but I also still had the privilege of being a white person. I still had a network that I didn't do anything to get other than be born into this family. So no one has looked at me and made a quick, usually the assumption they've made is maybe I've had a little easier than I've had, but that hasn't been detrimental to me. But I, I wouldn't trade my experience because I do think it allows me to, to be more easily empathetic. Mm. But I had to explain to my own parent that her having received survivor benefits for my dad, that's coming out of the very same pot of money as the aid to families with dependent children or welfare. It, that is what it was. Mm-hmm. But her, and, I, and I'm not trying to put her down, but her understanding and the way she could come to terms with it is by never looking at herself as, I'm not getting welfare. Mm-hmm. It's like that story yeah. in the book yeah. where it's like, we're, yeah. we're white, so yeah. that's better than being yeah. whatever, poor. Or, right. Poor white is better than being black, yeah. Yeah, and, and that... Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting you say, like, increase your empathy and, like, the the culture that we've all grown up with is a culture that was created by, you know, wealthy white men. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've been so interested in studying African-American women's history because the whole – so there's the, you know, National Association of Colored Women in the early 1900s and this – their man- – not manifesto, but their slogan, yes, (laughs) was lifting as we climb. And there's this idea with black women that, and I think Heather McGee really embodies that with this book of this idea that none of us are free uh, unless all of us are free. Mm -hmm. And all of us, we have to pick people up. And we just have not been indoctrinated into this idea. It is very much bootstraps individualism and it is harmful clearly it is harmful and i like this book because yeah i know a lot of this stuff i've studied a lot of it but the fact you know as an economist she's put numbers and behind it it's yeah Yeah. it's really beneficial to people who are like show me the receipts well here they are well here you are (laughs) here's here's the uh here's the spreadsheet yeah Yeah. (laughs) so brenda let's talk about your question mcgee shares a memory of white classmates proudly stating that they are fiscally conservative and socially liberal, but challenges the morality of fiscal conservatism when we can afford to eliminate poverty. Do you agree with McGee? Uh, Why or why not? And how can you best explain this concept to peers or family members who might also think of themselves as physically conservative, but socially liberal? I think this fiscally conservative and socially liberal idea, well, first of all, you know, her white classmates, there were children repeating what their parents were saying. 
But I think the fiscal conservative, socially liberal, it's very Reagan-esque. I agree with her. There, you cannot, they are mutually exclusive, the two. Um, If you're socially liberal, that means you care about social issues and social problems. How do you expect these problems that you claim to care about will get fixed, you know, without spending money? And I think I probably ran into a lot of people. I don't know. I kind of even feel my own mother said this at one point. You know, I completely agree with her. I think that I like that she couches it in a moral responsibility rather because it is. If you care about people and you care that we all are taken care of and have a leg up in this world, and then you should care you should want to put money behind that. And I think a lot of people that say these kinds of things are like small government, are libertarian, and yeah. that just, they just don't go together. You know, socially, you have to be socially liberal and fiscally liberal. Yeah, that's just kind of how I feel. I, I think that it's a talking point. It's kind of jargon. Mm-hmm. I don't know that when people say it, they actually think about what they mean by that probably it just sounds like a party line and a safe party line why is it safe though i i think in general people just don't listen to themselves um (laughs) and you know question the things that they repeat that they parrot Mm -hmm. yeah and if i had family members who said things like i'm fiscally conservative i do have family members who've said that Mm -hmm. yeah now i would say that doesn't make any sense I need you to think more. (laughs) Let's think about these words that you're saying. I need you to think more about what you're saying. And just explain, like, these things have to be paid for by somebody. But then that is a way sort of to get into, there's a 1%, of people in this country who have way more money than the rest of us. Yeah. So maybe we could tap into that to pay for these, you know, policies these social policies that you're so liberal about but i think people fear i think there's a lot of fear around that well i think the first anytime you start bringing up money (laughs) money creates a lot of issues so there is that well and then you take like okay if you're supposedly you know fiscally conservative socially liberal like okay well how are you balancing that when you're like voting and like picking people like okay it's Great to say that, you know, you're supporting pride or like, you know, you're pro gay marriage or whatever. But then if you're voting for somebody who's completely and totally against that because, you know, their tax benefits benefit you or you've been told benefit you more Mm -hmm. than like, you're not really socially liberal. Right. You're you're putting that as lower than this supposed fiscal benefit. Absolutely. I think a lot of people who wealthy people who voted for him. You know, they don't like him. His entire life, you know, that we've known him, he's been a con man and untrustworthy. But I think that his fiscal policies, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm for entitlements, even though I hate that term, mm-hmm. is for welfare, uh, you know, social benefits. I'm for that, and that's all great. But, you know, his policies make me more money. So, exactly. like, you either care about people or you care about yourself, and then. Right. You got to sort of pick one here. (laughs) As you were giving that example of fiscally conservative and socially liberal, 
I was just envisioning and hearing someone, may have been a family member, I'm not saying, (laughs) saying something like, well, the judgment on someone who's lower income, well, they've got a fancy cell phone or they've got fancy shoes. And it's, why are you satisfied that part of our, that our brothers and sisters, they have to be poor enough? Right. To, for that to be except they have to be able to have a roof over their head and some clothes and some food but other than that anything else that would make their life livable by your standards of living they can't have that because that's fancy and I, and and the shame and the you know there's like there's shame and guilt and fear tied up with all of that that if the poorest among us is a little bit closer to looking like me, I guess, is is one side of it. And if you're wealthy, I don't even know. I don't I why that that's an, a satisfactory answer. And that even goes to like unhoused people, you know, oh, they're gonna use the money I gave them to buy alcohol or drugs. Like so they're not they're like they're already on the street. Like Yeah. Okay. They have to be completely Sober and completely miserable. Like, mm-hmm. oh, see, so right? They can't have any <laughs> yeah. joy. Right? They can't have any joy. They can't have a cell phone. Everybody needs a cell phone. They can't, you know, the people on welfare. They can't have nice shoes. Like, it's and that's again, the that's public zero. pool. Sorry. Yeah, that's yeah. the public pool you yeah. want to close. We, you know, it's a line that can't be crossed. So yeah. the, the whole example that people like to throw around about, oh, you know, the person on food stamps buying lobster thing. Well. Who cares what they're spending? Like, <laughs> exactly. You're right. Oh, that doesn't the lobster you. fishermen would appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't <laughs> impact you in any way. Like, yeah, and right. Then a cell, like a cell phone, like you need to have a cell phone. Right. If anybody's going to pull themselves out of a situation, you have, you have to, to have a cell phone. I mean, are you, you aware, aware that access? most yeah. jobs you apply for now, you have to have access to the internet? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are they going to contact you if, if you don't have a cell phone? If they're saying those things and they don't understand that, then they are wildly out of touch. Yeah. You know, but some people are out yeah. of touch. So, Well, I want to thank you guys so much for our discussion. I think we had a great one. I think we got a lot of great answers out of these questions. And I hope that it was fun for you guys, too. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Hi, everyone. I'm Erin, the producer for Turning the Page. Welcome to our segment called Behind the Scenes. Each month, I'll take a step out from behind the scenes to introduce you to someone else at the library whose work is also typically out of the public eye. This month, to tie in with our discussion of The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, I'm interviewing Anna Marie Cornett, the Chief of Staff at Lexington Public Library, about the library's initiatives in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Hi, Anne-Marie. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, Erin. Thanks. Glad to be here. Awesome. So tell us about the library's DEI, which is Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Initiatives. Absolutely. Uh, So this project started for us back in 2019, and it started with a survey of all staff just to kind of gauge the DEI climate at the library. Mm -hmm. And we found that through the survey, there were three groups of individuals who were afforded or felt that they were afforded less opportunities than other staff members. And those were people with disabilities, people of color, 
and caregivers, both those who were caring for a parent, a spouse, or a child. And this was all coordinated through Decide Diversity, which is uh, Demetria Miles McDonald, her company out of Louisville. So she facilitated the survey and it was conducted online and they were there were one-on-one interviews and it was a really comprehensive survey. So we got really incredible data on um, where we really needed to improve DEI at the library. We approached it from the perspective that we need to work on ourselves if we're going to help improve our community. So we really started from the inside. Through that information, we formed the DEI task force, which was representative of staff members from across the system, um, different job functions, different races, different gender identities, all kinds of different levels of diversity. And we identified four areas to really focus our efforts and specifically around the the three groups that were identified as, as being inequitably treated. So our four areas of focus were to create an inclusive library culture, and that was very much focused on internal programs. Cultivating inclusive partnerships, which was really just going out into the community and making sure that um, we're really approaching things from an asset-based model, what is working well in communities that we're serving, hiring a diverse workforce, and developing diverse services, and created a vision statement for the library, which was adopted and approved by the board. And there's all kinds of things that are now kind of being discussed and in the works and in our areas of focus for the coming year. So things like, how are we meeting the needs of non-neurotypical customers? Are we providing enough books with diverse authors and diverse stories? And how are we training staff to make sure that they're pulling those materials and identifying those materials? So there's a lot going on. It's super exciting to be part of it and to just see these changes coming about. Great. Now that we've done all of that groundwork, what does DEI look like going forward for us? DEI is our life's work. This is not something that ends. You know, it's it's one thing today. It's going to be something different tomorrow. Um, and it's going to be something different 10 years from now. So during the pandemic, the George Floyd murder, the Breonna Taylor murder, all of those things really kind of solidified our commitment to anti-racism. And we so we've built that into the plan as well and really just called out our racist, what racist policies do we have? And so there's always going to be more areas that we can improve upon and we don't know what all of those will be. So I think we're really going to be looking at at our uh, at racism. I think we're going to be looking at at gender and gender identity. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it how it all evolves over time. What changes have we already made that you're particularly excited about? I think that one of the biggest changes that we made that had the most impact was our changing in the education requirements for positions. We know that the ability to even go to college or graduate from high school is a position of privilege. And to be able to go to library school and get your master's degree is privilege. And over 80% of librarians are white women. We have to remove those boundaries if we are going to diversify our workforce. Absolutely. It is so important that our community see themselves represented when they walk in our doors. And by removing those barriers, we're going to be able to hire people with a broader base of experience to share with their community. We're going to be able to provide better programs and services. I'm just really excited about all of the new staff that we've been hiring and are going to continue to hire with these more diverse experiences. 
So this is a library podcast, so yeah. you have to ask, what are you reading? Well, you caught me because <laughs> I I fin- I always try to read a fiction and a nonfiction book at the same time. And I yeah. finished both of them like yesterday. Right. So I'm in between books. So I'm going to give you multiple. So yeah. I just finished Gender, Your Guide, uh, a gender-friendly primer on what to know, what to say, and what to do in the new gender culture by Lee Arrington, which was wonderful. They are the, I guess, host of theyismypronoun.com or .org. I should have written that down before I got here. Sorry. Um, but it's, it's a great book. If anybody has questions on kind of how to navigate pronoun usage, it is really, really fantastic. And then I also just finished Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, which was awesome. She wrote Gods of Jade, great Mexican writer, really fantastic book. And so now I just got my holds today for Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides and Making Numbers Count, The Art and Science of Communicating Numbers by Chip Heath and Carla Starr. So great. Yeah. All right. Thank you for being with us today. I'm really excited for our new podcast. So thank you very much. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for listening to Turning the Page, a podcast brought to you by Lexington Public Library staff. If you've enjoyed listening, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions for future podcasts, you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublive.org. That's elibrarian at L-E-X-P-U-B lib.org. I'm Jennifer, and we'll be back to turn another page.